1949, the devil came to St. Louis, or at least some version of him did, according to stories, newspaper accounts, eyewitness testimonies, and a terrifying mix of truth and fiction that has been told and retold over the last 70 years. The story of what took place in St. Louis has inspired books, documentaries, and even one very famous horror film, and while it is without a doubt the most mysterious paranormal event to ever occur in the city, it has become such a strange mix of truth and urban legend that it's hard to know where the real story ends and bad writing from newspaper reporters begins. But here, in this series within a series of the podcast, we're hoping to straighten things out. This is part four of our look into the St. Louis exorcism story. So if you're joining us for the first time here, we suggest you go back to episode 29 where the story begins. Everything about this story is confusing enough and, well, we don't want to make it any worse by having you start in the middle. In our last episode, the exorcism of Robbie Doe was underway at the home of his relatives in Belnor on the northwest side of St. Louis. After enduring night after night of terror, his family was so distraught that they were relieved when Father Bowdern suggested that Robbie should be removed from the house so that the exorcism could continue. Things were, unbelievably, going to get worse. And while things certainly hadn't reached the Hollywood level of what would end up on the silver screen in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, the difference here is that this is a true story, at least as far as we know. Was Robbie really possessed by demons? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? In this series within a series, we've gathered the evidence. We're going to present it so that you can decide for yourself. All that we ask is that you keep an open mind and then decide what you think happened in 1949 after you've heard all the evidence. It's a strange story. It's a confusing one, and as I keep saying, it is pretty damn scary. These are episodes of the podcast that will have you listening with the lights on. Supernatural or not, something happened to that young boy and his family in 1949. As our story continues, we'll try and figure out what that something was. Just be ready. Things are going to get even stranger in the episode you're about to hear. You're going to be disturbed, perhaps even frightened. And you can tell yourself that it's only a podcast. But remember, the story's true. And it happened here in St. Louis. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. On March 21st, 
Father Bowder took Robbie to the Alexian Brothers Hospital in the city's south side. The hulking stone building had been built in 1869 and must have looked terrifying to the young boy. As terrifying as it looked, though, the Alexian brothers had been known for the quality of their care dating back to medieval times, when they gained a reputation for easing the pain of the dying and the mad, and for staying behind to bury the dead after others fled from various plagues that swept through Europe at the time. In 19th century America, they specialized in treating the mentally ill and had strict rules that forbid the use of chains, handcuffs, and straitjackets, a novel approach for the era. They did, however, have isolated security rooms for the violently ill, and it was one of these security rooms on the building's fifth floor that Father Bowdern reserved for Robbie. Just after 10 p.m., Robbie was put to bed in the security room. Although Father Bowdern was aware of the demand for secrecy that had been placed on the exorcism, he trusted the Alexian monks. The order had been the first medical practitioners in America to treat alcoholism as a disease starting in the 1920s, and they secretly cared for many priests with alcohol problems, deciding when they could resume their duties. Such secrets convinced Father Bowdern that the Alexians could be trusted with his secrets as well. The security room must have been a disconcerting place for Robbie. There were leather straps on the bed, bars on the window, and no doorknob on the inside of the door. The only way to get out of the room was to knock on the door until one of the brothers let you out. The room itself was sparsely furnished. There was a single bed with an iron frame, a nightstand, a desk, and chair, and a small couch that one of the brothers moved into the room for Robbie's father, who asked to stay the night with his son. Robbie nervously entered the room and sat down on the bed. He was scared, perhaps more by the intimidating building than by the exorcism that was about to continue. Father Bowder began to pray as a prelude to the ritual, and Father Bishop and Walter Halloran braced themselves for another long night of terror. But then nothing happened. Robbie was not asleep or in his usual trance. In fact, his eyes were wide open in fear and he was looking wildly about the room, the bars on the window and at the leather straps that had been fastened on his wrists. The boy was terrified and unusually quiet. For the first time, the exorcism went on without any interruptions from Robbie, who remained awake the entire time. When the prayers ended, Father Bowdern led everyone in the room, including several Alexian brothers in the rosary. Then he quietly rapped on the door so that they could leave. Father Bowdern led the way and gestured for everyone but Robbie's father to follow. As they left, Father Bishop glanced back to see Robbie's father leaning over his son, comforting him and soothing him to sleep. He later told Father Bishop that Robbie fell into a deep and untroubled sleep at about 11.30 p.m. His father laid down on the couch and for the first time in several months, both he and his son slept peacefully. The next morning, Robbie woke up around 6.30 a.m. and awakened his father. After getting dressed and getting their few things together, they left the hospital and returned to the house on Roanoke Drive. They spent the day there without incident, and for the first time, the family began to feel a glimmer of hope. Father Bowdern was pleased by the successful night. He hoped that Robbie was beginning to recover and with that in mind, decided that one night in the hospital was enough for the boy. The next night, Tuesday, March 22nd, Robbie remained at the house on Roanoke Drive. Around 9.30 p.m., a little while after Robbie had gone to bed, the mattress on the bed began to shake and the boy again slipped into his chilling trance. 
Robbie's mother immediately called Father Bishop, who hurried to the house in the company of two priests. He did not identify them in his notes, but one of them was likely his friend, Father Kenny. The three men knelt around the shaking bed and recited the prayers of exorcism, followed by the rosary. Shortly before midnight, Robbie began to breathe deeply as he faded into a deep, natural sleep. Father Bishop and the other two priests left the house and returned to the university, where Bishop informed Father Bowdern what had occurred. He was not as concerned about the relapse as one might believe. He interpreted Robbie's more docile behavior as a sign that the possession was easing, so Father Bowdern decided to take things one step further and attempt to convert Robbie to Catholicism. He believed that such a decision would bring Robbie into the ranks of the church, which was his greatest form of protection against the negative entities that were attacking him. He spoke to Robbie's parents and they readily consented to have their son instructed as a Catholic. Father Bowdern set up a room at the St. Francis Xavier Rectory and Robbie and his father came to stay there. He then began double duty, teaching Robbie the catechism by day and performing the exorcism by night. At 9.30 that night, the exorcism began again. Those present included Fathers Bowdern and Bishop, Walter Halloran, Robbie's father, and a newcomer, Father William Van Roo, a priest who had been ordained but was now working on his internship under Father Bowdern. Bowdern had sworn into secrecy, knowing there was no way that he would not discover what was happening in the rectory where he also lived. The ritual began with Robbie reciting some of the prayers that he had learned during his studies. Then, just as Father Bowdern began his own prayers, the boy exploded. He began to scream, kick, and swing at Halloran, who held him down on the bed. He called for Father Van Roo and Robbie's father to help him. As Bowdern prayed, the three men struggled to hold Robbie, who continued to twist and fight. He screamed and howled for several minutes and then grew very quiet. His eyes, which had been tightly clenched shut, opened up and he smiled up at Walter Halloran. When Robbie spoke, his voice was completely normal. It was as though the last few minutes had never happened. Please let go of my arms, he said to Halloran in a subdued tone. You're hurting me. Halloran faltered. I'm just going to hold my hands close to you, he replied. He eased his hands away from Robbie's thin arms and Father Van Roo did the same. But Robbie's docile mood abruptly ended with a howling scream and Halloran snatched up the boy's arm again. Father Van Roo did the same, pouncing forward and pressing it to the mattress. He hesitated to hold it very hard though. He looked sharply over at Halloran and frowned at the young man. There's no sense in holding his arms that hard, Father Van Roo said. You're only making him uncomfortable. Halloran started to object. He had been through this with Robbie several times before, and this was the first time that Van Roo had dealt with it. However, he also realized that the other man was a priest and that Halloran was only a scholastic. Following Father Van Roo's orders, Halloran let go of Robbie's arm. In a split second, Robbie, with his eyes closed, lashed out and slammed a fist into Halloran's nose, which broke with a loud snap. With his other hand, he swung and backhanded Van Roo across the face. The priest's nose exploded with a gush of blood, but at least it wasn't broken. Father Van Roo blinked with pain and reached out to take hold of Robbie's swinging arm. Walter Halloran had already pinned the other arm back down to the bed. This time, he wasn't letting go, no matter who told him to do so. Father Van Roo finally realized that Halloran was not intentionally hurting the boy, and he too grimly bore down on Robbie's arm. As Father Bowdern continued to recite the exorcism prayers, Robbie began to urinate and break wind, laughing and screaming as he did so. The smell in the room became so overpowering that Robbie's father ran for the window and flung it open. 
As Halloran and Van Roo were fighting Robbie, and his father was assisting in whatever way he could, Father Bowdern and Father Bishop were experiencing the worst night so far. The two men were tortured by the fact that Robbie would awaken from his trance occasionally whimpering and weeping, and then would plunge back into unconsciousness laughing and screaming. As Robbie screamed and laughed, he described his penis and the anatomy of the other men in the room. A towel had been draped across his body to soak up the urine and he managed to slip his hands free, toss aside the towel and pretend to masturbate. Father Van Roo and Halloran grabbed his hands and pinned them to the mattress again. He continued to shout out words that Father Bishop refused to record. He only noted that they were, quote, lowly and smacked of the abuse of sex, unquote. He also remarked that Robbie, during his periods of daytime normalcy, never used obscene words. The screaming, obscenities, and violence continued for the next several hours, wearing on the Jesuits gathered in the room and especially on Robbie's father. His son had never been a perfect child, but the monster in this bedroom was unrecognizable to him. Robbie drifted in and out of his eyes closed state, barking like a dog, singing strange songs, and contorting his body. Finally, at about 2.30 a.m., he went limp and fell into a natural sleep. The horrific night was over. They were all exhausted. Father Bowdern was troubled, but he did not despair. He believed the demon would soon depart, recalling the jagged X that appeared on Robbie's leg during one of the nights of the exorcism. Both he and Father Bishop believed this meant the demon would depart in 10 days from that time, or on March 25th, the Holy Feast of Annunciation, which occurred nine months before Christmas when Catholics celebrated the announcement of Christ's birth by the Archangel Gabriel. In just two days, they thought, the demon would be gone. But of course, both men were wrong. The exorcism continued at the rectory. On Thursday night, Robbie again shouted, barked, howled, and began to break wind and urinate all over the bed. The bedchamber was again filled with a foul odor that made the eyes of the men in the room start to water. Robbie's father again threw open the window just so they could breathe. Father Bowdern had invited several other Jesuits to assist them with the exorcism, although Father Bishop does not record their names in the exorcist diary. One of them, a man who was somewhat overweight, was singled out for special abuse by Robbie. He helped Walter Halloran hold the boy down during the worst of his seizures, and Robbie screamed at him and called him a fat ass and an ox. He also told the man that he had big tits and made sucking sounds whenever he came near. During one of the violent spasms, Robbie also told the man that he would, quote, be with me in hell in 1957. According to one of the stories that circulated about the exorcism, the priest, who had always been a heavy drinker, swore off alcohol for months. Father Bishop noted that Robbie's foulest words came after midnight on the night of the Feast of Annunciation. When he screamed at them to kiss his pecker and use my stick, he accused the priests of having large penises that you like to rub up and down. He bellowed for the priests to cut out the damn Latin and to get away from me, you goddamn bastards. Robbie also made other suggestive and filthy comments that Father Bishop refused to transcribe. One of them, recalled years later by Walter Halloran, involved Bowdern suggesting that he was a pedophile. When Bowdern ignored him, Robbie resumed his vicious cursing and thrashing. One of the priests who was present that night might have been Father Charles O'Hara of Marquette University in Milwaukee. There is no record of him in the diary, but since he did claim to witness some of the happenings in the case, we can surmise that he visited the rectory when Robbie was there. 
Years later, Father O'Hara would pass along what he saw to Father Eugene Gallagher of Georgetown University in Washington. At the time, Father Gallagher was teaching a class about exorcisms that had been performed by Jesus, and one of the students in the class was a future writer named, you guessed it, William Peter Blatty. According to Father Gallagher, Father O'Hara described one of the most dramatic incidents connected to the case. He stated, One night, the boy brushed off his handlers and soared through the air at Father Bowdern, standing at some distance from his bed with the ritual book in his hands. Presumably, the father was about to be attacked, but the boy got no further than the book. And when his hands hit that, and I assure you, Gene, I saw it with my own eyes, he didn't tear the book, he dissolved it. The book vaporized into confetti and fell in fine, small pieces all over the floor. The horrifying events continued for the next two hours or so, and then at around 2.30 a.m., Robbie calmed down and sank down into a genuine sleep. Relieved, the men did their best to clean up Robbie and clean up the room without waking the boy up. They left with Fathers Bowdern and Bishop still believing that the demon was going to depart from Robbie's body that day once and for all. The following day was quiet. Robbie spent most of the day reading and keeping to himself. Father Bowdern spent as much time with him as he could, continuing to instruct him in the Catholic faith and giving him books to read. As darkness fell on the evening of March 25th, Father Bowdern prepared for what he felt would be the end of Robbie's ordeal. Soon after Robbie went to his bedroom, Jesuit priests invited by Father Bowdern began arriving at the rectory. When Father Bowdern, Father Bishop, Father Van Roo, Walter Halloran, and Robbie's father gathered in the room with the boy, the other Jesuits gathered outside the door of the room to pray. As the men inside of the room began the exorcism, Robbie began to toss and turn on the bed. He slipped into one of his trances, and without cursing, screaming, or making any other sound, his body began to physically react. Lying flat on his back, he stiffly moved his arms in and out from his sides while he scissored his legs back and forth at the same time. His face remained impassive and completely calm for several minutes, and then the movements became faster and faster. Walter Halloran attempted to halt the movement, but he was unable to do so. The boy's arms and legs slammed against him as they began swinging faster and faster. Finally, Robbie's body convulsed out of control, and he fell from the bed and crashed to the floor. Robbie stayed completely still on the hardwood floor, and Halloran gently lifted him back onto the bed. As soon as he was laid back down, the movements began again. This time, as the speed increased, he rolled off the bed and into the arms of Father Van Roo. The priest lifted the boy back into the bed again, and the movement stopped. Robbie was now completely silent and calm, but the room was tense. Robbie was not in a normal sleep state. Something was going to happen, they all knew, but could not imagine what it would be. Well, it started just after midnight. Robbie broke his silence by cursing his father and spitting into the man's face. He had been so quiet that Halloran and Father Van Roo had relaxed their grip on him. Robbie bolted away from them and swung his body around the bed so that he could deliver solid kicks to his father and to Father Bowder, who grunted from the violence of the assault. 
Both men managed to get clear of the next kicks and Robbie connected with a wooden chair instead, sending it clattering across the room. Moments after this outburst though, Robbie went into a natural sleep. Unlike previous nights, Father Bowdern chose to continue the exorcism rather than call the proceedings to a halt. He sensed a chance for victory on a night that he still believed would mark the end of the possession. He swept his hand into the sign of a cross and persisted with the prayers. He began to be filled with hope as he continued to read. Robbie usually had violent reactions during the prayers, but tonight he was not moving. Father Bowdern sprinkled the bed with holy water and then led the others out of the room. The priests gathered outside simply watched as Father Bowdern walked past them. He was as exhausted as he always was, but this time he felt a calmness that he'd not experienced at any time during the exorcism so far. Was it really over? Well, Father Bowdern began to believe that it was. Robbie slept until the late hours of Saturday morning. When he awoke, he showered and dressed, and his father drove him to his uncle's house on Roanoke Drive. Robbie seemed his usual daytime self, but his family all watched him nervously. They knew that Father Bowder believed the X meant 10 days, and they hoped he was right. If Robbie could get through the night without incident, they were convinced that everything would be okay. That night after dinner, the family had a celebration of sorts and played a game or two with Robbie. His mother watched and worried over the clock, though. Finally, when she could wait no longer, she instructed Robbie to go and get ready for bed. He went upstairs, put on his pajamas, and climbed into bed. His mother tucked him in and turned out the light and waited for the strange noises and the violent sounds to begin. She kept the telephone close to where she was sitting, convinced she would soon be on the line with Father Bowdern, begging him to come back to the house. She waited, looking up the stairs, but nothing happened. Robbie slept through the entire night and woke early to spend the day with his family. On Sunday night, again, nothing happened. Robbie and his family spent the night in peace once more. On Monday morning, Robbie's father went back to Maryland and his wife and son began making plans to follow him. Later that day, Father Bowdern dropped by to bless the house. He went from room to room, making the sign of a cross and sprinkling holy water. It was a day of celebration and joy as far as he was concerned. He sat down and spoke with Robbie about his future and cautiously asked him if he was feeling any different now, compared to, say, how he'd been feeling over the past few weeks. Robbie just seemed confused and puzzled by the question. He'd been feeling fine, he told Father Bowdern, except for being sleepy some days. On Monday afternoon, Robbie's mother began to make preparations for returning to Maryland. Train tickets were purchased, and after the next two days passed uneventfully, Robbie's relatives began looking forward to getting their home and their lives back to normal again. On Thursday night, Robbie and his cousin went to bed. Things were now more like they used to be when Robbie and his parents had come to visit. The two boys laughed and horsed around and were scolded by their mothers for making too much noise. After the boys settled down, the adults gathered in the living room to read, chat, and listen to the radio. Around 11.30 p.m., they were about to go to bed themselves when Robbie came downstairs and told his mother that he was feeling sick. She told him to go back to bed and try to sleep, but Robbie insisted that he was scared. His feet were hot and then cold, and he begged everyone to come back upstairs with him. The adults, as well as Robbie's cousin, who had originally brought Father Bishop into the situation, looked at each other anxiously. They could not help but wonder whether or not the strange happenings were starting all over again. They followed Robbie upstairs, their hearts filled with dread. And it turned out to be one of the strangest nights so far. 
Robbie climbed into bed, but he did not lay down. His eyes clouded over and then his head dropped back. He seemed to be going into one of his trances again. As he sat there on the bed, the index finger of his hand began tracing some sort of pattern on the sheet that covered the bed. Moments later, the mattress began to shake, just as it had so many times before. Robbie kept moving his finger back and forth as if he was writing something. He lowered his head so that his closed eyes looked down directly at the sheet as if there was something to see. He seemed to be reading whatever it was that he had written on the bed. As his lips began to move, his cousin grabbed a notebook and a pencil from the desk. As Robbie began to speak in a dull, monotonous tone, she wrote down everything that he said. He spoke each line like it was a verse from a poem, and she wrote it down just as he said it. I will stay for 10 days, but will return in four days. If Robbie stays, gone to lunch. If you stay and become a Catholic, it will stay away. God will take it away four days after it is gone 10 days. God is getting powerful. The last day when it quits, it will leave a sign on my front. Father Bishop, all people that mangle with me will die a terrible death. Robbie's mother left the room in tears and went downstairs to bring the rectory. She told Father Bowdern what had happened, and he hurried to the house with Walter Halloran and Father Van Roo. He looked over the message that had been written, and while tempted to ask for an explanation, recalled the warnings about engaging with the demon and began prayers of exorcism instead. As he was reading, he was suddenly interrupted by Robbie, who asked for a pencil. With some hesitation, and I'll bet, considered he'd likely stab someone with it, it was finally given to the boy, who still seemed to be deep in a trance. Robbie began to write, muttering to himself. The Jesuits heard the names Pete and Joe used repeatedly, and while he mumbled the words along with other things, he wrote quickly on the bedsheet. In a frenzy, he scrawled all over the cloth as his cousin tried to keep a record of the messages in her notebook. This proved impossible. Robbie's uncle, who ran a print shop, left the room and came back with several large sheets of paper. He tacked them up on the wall above the bed, and Robbie, without hesitation, went from the bedsheet to the paper and continued writing there. Father Bowder must have recognized that the night of exorcism was nearly out of control, but he seemed powerless to stop it. The rules of exorcism warned that sometimes the devil will leave the possessed person to make it appear that he has departed. For this reason, the exorcist must be on guard lest he fall into this trap. Father Bowdern had been deceived. He'd hoped the letter X meant the demon was leaving and a few peaceful nights had convinced him of the fact. He must have been upset with himself for allowing his hopes to turn to a belief, a belief that had undermined the exorcism. And now a pencil had proved the undoing of this night's work. The exorcism was completely out of control. Father Bowden realized what was happening, composed himself, and resumed the ritual. Robbie continued writing for nearly two hours, then slipped out of the spell, and as he usually did, fell into an untroubled sleep. When the prayers ended, Father Bowden and the others recited the rosary, and then the priest gathered the papers from the wall and the pages of notes that Robbie's cousin had compiled. In the days to come, Father Bowdern, along with Father Bishop and Father Van Roo, studied the notes and Father Bishop arranged them for the diary. He focused his writing on the answers to the commands that were given in the exorcism prayer that was quoted, Thou shalt tell me by some sign or other thy name and the day and the hour of thy departure. Father Bishop noted the number of times that the letter X appeared within Robbie's writings. This was written four times on this first occasion and was repeated several times during the exorcism, usually in answer to the question about the day of departure, he wrote. 
Robbie also repeated with a slight change a line that his cousin had written down for him at the beginning of the night's events. Quote, I will stay 10 days and then return after the four days are up. Such a statement would only make sense if the demon had returned on Wednesday. If Friday, March 25th had been the 10th day and the demon had remained absent on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, the writings made sense. However, Robbie had not shown any signs of the possession on Wednesday night and the demon had not manifested again until Thursday. There are some who believe, and perhaps in an effort to make the statement correct, that Robbie could have started showing signs of the possession on Wednesday, but Father Bowdern was not there to assess his condition. For this reason, the possession went unnoticed until Thursday, when the symptoms peaked once more. If this is the case, then the words that Robbie wrote became eerily accurate. During the exorcism, the commands of the priest go beyond simply a demand for the time of the demon's departure. The demon is also commanded to reveal his name and speak in Latin. At one point during the night, the response came in incomprehensible marks on the paper. The marks were not letters of the standard alphabet. Another response was very specific, though. It read, I speak the language of the persons. I will put in Robbie's mind when he makes up his mind that the priests are wrong about writing English. I will, that is the devil, will try to get his mother and dad to hate the Catholic Church. I will answer to the name of spite. Another statement in response to the command read, quote, I am the devil himself, which is kind of like someone claiming that they're Napoleon, but that's neither here nor there. This was followed by an odd sentence that read, You will have to pray for a month in the Catholic Church. There was no indication as to who you might be or whether for a month literally meant praying for a month or that the demon would stay with Robbie for a month. None of the Jesuits were able to figure out just what this remark meant. Most of the other writings and drawings from this chaotic night were just as confusing. Few of them made any sense whatsoever. One of the drawings stunned Father Bishop, however. It was of a human face. It was too badly drawn to recognize it, but next to it were two words, dead bishop. So you could kind of understand why that bothered him. It was another line that did not bode well for Robbie, though. That line stated, you may not believe me, then Robbie will suffer forever. Robbie had been learning about the Catholic faith since the day that he had been taken to the rectory. After his possession relapsed, Father Bowdern increased his efforts to get Robbie into the church. He believed, as he did when he began the boy's instruction, that his entry into the church would help him battle the dark forces that were bedeviling him. He was now eager to get Robbie baptized, followed by instruction in the sacraments of confession and Holy Communion. A date was set for the baptism, Friday, April 1st, at St. Francis Xavier Church. Father Bowdern planned it for the evening, but before the time when Robbie's usual spells began. Robbie and his family left for the church around 7.30 p.m. Robbie was sitting in the back seat of the car between his mother and father, who had returned from Maryland after Robbie's relapse. 
Robbie's uncle was driving and was rounding a corner a few blocks from the church when his nephew suddenly sprang forward from the back seat, letting out an inhuman howl as he did so. Just moments before, Robbie had complained to his mother that he was feeling sick. His parents assumed he was just nervous until the car radio, which had been quietly playing music, began transmitting only deafening static. A moment later, Robbie exploded with rage, screaming that he could not be driven out by baptism and communion. He howled and roared with laughter as he flew over the front seat at his uncle. Robbie grabbed the steering wheel and spun it so that the automobile headed directly for the curb. You son of a bitch, he yelled at his uncle when the man fought to pull Robbie's hand off the wheel. Finally, his uncle reached down and pulled up the emergency brake. The car screeched to a stop, its front bumper resting against a light post. Robbie let go of the wheel and then turned and grabbed his mother by the throat. His uncle turned off the car, but the radio still blared static. As Robbie howled and struck his mother, his father grabbed him by the shoulders and tried to pull him off her. Robbie's uncle jumped out of the car, opened the rear door, and pulled the boy's mother out. He climbed in, and the two men fought to pin Robbie to the seat. He snapped his teeth and barked at them as his mother climbed behind the wheel and drove toward the church. As the car stopped in front of the church on Lindell Boulevard, Robbie's father and uncle hauled the boy out of the back seat. Father Bowdern, who had been standing near the doors waiting for their arrival, heard the screaming and yelling and ran outside. He saw Robbie being wrestled to the sidewalk while screaming, kicking, and swinging his fists in all directions. His mother waited in the car, too terrified to get out. The two men began dragging Robbie up the church steps. He was spitting, cursing, and braying a maniacal laugh. Father Bowder could not allow the boy into the church under those circumstances. He directed the men to the rectory. As he was carried inside, he began to howl like a dog and vomit mucus and blood on all three men. Father Bowdern grabbed a pitcher of ice water from the kitchen refrigerator and threw it in Robbie's face. Well, that calmed him down, but only for a moment. His father and uncle pulled him to his feet, and he suddenly went limp, refusing to walk. They carried him between them up the stairs to the third floor room where he had earlier stayed. He laughed and cursed them up every flight of steps. They threw him onto the bed and held his arms and legs until Father Bowdern arrived. The priest quickly appeared, intent on continuing the baptism, even if it was not the formal ritual that had been planned. He asked in a loud voice, Do you renounce Satan and all his works? Robbie snarled at him and lurched forward, nearly breaking the grip of his father and uncle. He spat at Father Bowdern, spattering his face with thick mucus. But the priest repeated, Do you renounce Satan and all his works? The boy reacted even more violently. His body arched upward and he again nearly managed to spring off the bed and attack Father Bowder. Only a renewed effort by the two men managed to keep him on the mattress. Father Bowder asked the question a third time and then a fourth. Finally, Robbie's eyes snapped open. He was not a monster. He was a tired, weak young boy. He managed to whisper, I do renounce Satan and all his works. And then his eyes closed again, and he tried once more to rip himself from the hands of the men holding him. He vomited out a narrow stream of blood and mucus at the priest. Father Bowdern was unfazed. Between curses, laughter, and threats of harm, he began the baptism. The first touch of the holy water on the boy's faith sent him into the worst rage of the night. He twisted, spat, and cursed as Father Bowdern splashed him again and again. For an instant, he thought he saw a glimpse of the real Robbie, but then he was gone. The baptism took nearly four hours to complete. He followed it with the now familiar prayers of the exorcism and eventually the room was calm. Robbie fell into another deep but troubled sleep.
The idea that Robbie's baptism would ease the demonic attacks on him turned out to be false. Instead of getting better, Robbie got worse. He became even more violent and wilder than ever before. On Saturday, April 2nd, he woke from his normal sleep and for the first time slipped into a horrific trance state that lasted for more than 15 hours. The boy never left his bed that morning. He simply went from deep sleep to thrashing about incoherently, howling, barking, and wailing in a voice so loud it could be heard throughout the entire rectory. Before anyone could get close enough to Robbie and pin him down, he'd hurled a pillow at an overhead light, which shattered the shade and the bulb. He also broke a wash basin, but no one was sure how he managed to do that because it was on the other side of the room. After these dramatic hours passed, Father Bowden realized that he had little time to wait. He decided to follow the baptism with Holy Communion on the following day. Because of the violence that was occurring around him, Father Bowden gave Robbie conditional absolution, forgiving him for any sins that he would have admitted to in the confessional. Robbie had been taught about Holy Communion, but he was in no state to remember his lessons. He had to be held down on the bed. As Father Bowden offered prayers, the boy began to shake and twitch, but he offered little resistance. Not expecting too much trouble, Father Bowdern stepped in close with the communion host in his outstretched hand. As he came closer, Robbie suddenly began to jerk about on the bed. His arms and legs swung and kicked, and he began to growl and bark with rage. Father Bowdern quickly placed the host in the boy's mouth, but Robbie spit it out. He tried again, and Robbie coughed it out once more. It took more than two hours to get him to accept communion, but as soon as he did, a change seemed to come over him. His eyes opened and he began to be calm and relaxed. His terrible rage had disappeared. Plans were made to take Robbie back to the house on Roanoke Drive. His relatives must have been thrilled. Walter Halloran was unable to accompany them, so Father Bowdern recruited the services of a young Jesuit, Father O'Flattery. He had sworn him to secrecy and the Jesuit was eager to help. The drive to Belnora became an eventful one. Robbie was happy and smiling as they pulled away from the curb, but as soon as they started down the street, Robbie unexpectedly let out a loud and prolonged growl, and he flung himself forward over the front seat and grabbed Father O'Flattery by the neck. As the car swerved to the side of the road, Fathers Bowdern and Bishop, along with Robbie's father, tried to pry the boy's hands from the priest's neck. They were eventually successful, but his fingers left angry red marks behind. When they reached the house on Roanoke Drive, Robbie changed again. He told his mother that he was starving and sat down to eat a huge breakfast. His family watched him closely throughout the day. One moment he was walking around the house looking for something to do, and the next, he was crouched in a corner with his eyes half closed, growling softly. They were all reaching the limits of their endurance. That night, Father Bowdern returned with Father's Bishop and O'Flattery. It would prove to be, if that even seems possible at this point, one of the strangest nights of the exorcism so far. Robbie sat on his bed while Father Bowdern began the prayers of exorcism. He showed no response other than boredom, and he asked his mother for some ice cream. For some reason, Father Bowdern allowed him to have it. He then sat and ate it and watched the Jesuits as they prayed. Chaos followed. At one point, the priest chased Robbie around the house. When he got hold of one of their prayer books, he managed to rip several pages from it before he could be stopped. And as the exorcism went on, Robbie squatted on the bed with the torn pages clutched in his hands, laughing maniacally, the same brain laughter over and over and over again. Father Bowdern ignored him 
or at least he tried to. At one point, he read a passage in Latin demanding that the demon reveal its name and hour of its departure. Robbie interrupted him, repeating the Latin words exactly, and then adding on to the end, stick it up your ass. This seemingly innocuous moment has been debated fiercely by those who have studied this case over the years. As mentioned before, I've never felt this case truly fit all the criteria for an exorcism. Robbie never spoke in a foreign language and never revealed information that he could not have learned by natural means prior to permission for an exorcism being granted. Many have pointed out to this incident as proof that Robbie was genuinely possessed, having used with apparent understanding a language they had no knowledge of prior to that moment. Others have dismissed this as simply a boy who mimicked the language of the prayer and had no idea what the words meant. The fact that he repeated the words that Father Bowder had just spoken adds some credibility to this dismissal. Even Walter Halloran would remark years later that Robbie often copied or echoed the Latin prayers and phrases used by the Jesuits. Father Halloran did not believe that the boy exhibited any sign of understanding what he was saying, but if Robbie was genuinely possessed, could the demon have not used just such a method to try and confuse the priests about the authenticity of the case? The Jesuits were often warned not to engage in conversation with the possessed person because the demon wanted nothing more than to cause confusion and disharmony among those who battled against it. What better way to cause confusion than to make the priests believe that Robbie could be faking the whole thing? If the Jesuits became disenchanted enough with the situation, they might be convinced to call off the exorcism, which would be exactly what the demon, if it was real, would want. But there was no confusion as Father's Father Bowden was concerned. He believed the possession was real. Robbie's use of Latin on this night made him more determined than ever to continue. He kept reading from the prayer book, again demanding that the demon reveal the time when it would depart. He was forced to raise his voice when he did so because it was almost impossible for him to be heard over the sound of Robbie screaming for him to shut up. The exorcism continued for four more hours. Father Bowdern continued to read in Latin and Robbie sometimes echoed it or responded with that hideous laugh or simply cursed at the priest. But things soon took another turn as the markings on Robbie's body returned once again. First, it was three vivid red scratches on his leg. Slowly, another large and jagged X manifested on his skin and then more skin brandings appeared. These last scratches, which oozed with bright red blood, formed the number 18. Soon after, another 18 appeared, and then another and another. Finally, at 1.15 a.m., Robbie came out of the trance and he weakly asked his father for permission to get out of bed so that he could sit down in a chair. His father helped him up and the boy shakily crossed the floor and sat down. His hands were trembling, and while he'd been scared many times before, on this night, he was absolutely terrified. He looked over his father, who was returning to work in Maryland at the first of the week, and he begged him, Please take me home. I can't stand it here. I'm going crazy. Before this night, Robbie had never come out of a trance with any awareness of what had been happening to him. On this night, he seemed to know that something was very, very wrong. He may or may not have known he was possessed, but he definitely believed that he was going insane.
Over the weekend, Robbie was more or less himself. Although pale and listless, his behavior was not out of the ordinary until Saturday evening when he slumped into a half sleep from which he did not stir for the rest of the night. Even the next day, he seemed to drift in and out of awareness, hanging in a state of eerie calm that was almost like a hypnotic trance. He swayed back and forth in his chair, never responding to anyone who addressed him. He never became violent, but his family was still nervous about this new lifeless state. Robbie and his parents were returning to Maryland the next day and they were worried about how he would act on the train. They called Father Bowdern for advice. He drove to the house that afternoon accompanied by Fathers Bishop Van Roo and O'Flattery. They gathered in the living room to observe the boy who was weak and drained. He slouched in a chair, hardly able to keep his eyes open. But of course, that changed quickly. Robbie sprang from his chair and attacked his aunt. He tried to reach her throat, but snagged the collar of her dress instead. He clawed at her, growling and snarling like an animal. Robbie's uncle pulled him away, but it took his father and all four priests to get him to release his aunt and pin the boy to the floor. Robbie's uncle roughly shoved the priests out of the way. He grabbed a hold of Robbie and carried the boy upstairs. Angrily, he threw him onto the bed. His tolerance for Robbie's spells was at an end. This was the second time that the boy had attacked his aunt and no matter how sick he might be, his uncle simply couldn't take it anymore. Robbie began to giggle and started singing a little tune in a chilling, high-pitched voice. At first, his uncle was unable to understand what he was saying, then it became all too clear. Robbie was singing about his young cousin, a boy he'd always been close with. He giggled and sang the boy's name several times and then in the same eerie voice began repeating, you will die tonight, you will die tonight, you will die tonight. Someone, and Father Bishop does not say who it was, but based on his earlier behavior, I'm gonna guess it was his uncle, grabbed a pillow and pushed it down onto Robbie's face, muffling his song and threatening to smother the boy. Cooler heads soon prevailed and the pillow was pulled away. If nothing else, the violence had ended the boy's horrible singing, and he lay there silent on the bed as Father Bowdern began, once again, the prayers of exorcism. Over the course of the next two hours, he showed absolutely no emotion and he made no sound. Finally, Robbie seemed to go into a natural sleep, but he was restless, tossing and turning and snoring loudly. At midnight, the priests left and it was almost as if Robbie was waiting for them to depart. Moments after the priest drove away, Robbie exploded with violence. He became so vicious that his father and uncle put gloves on his hands and then bound his hands and his arms with heavy shipping tape. Robbie paused in his screaming and howling to whine about the pain caused by the tape, and his father and uncle relented and decided to remove it. And of course, as soon as they did, though, he laughed at their gullibility and flew into another rage. The two men grappled and struggled with Robbie until he finally fell asleep at 3.30 a.m. on Monday morning. When Father Bowdern heard about what had happened after he left, he decided to accompany the family back to Maryland on the train. It was departing from St. Louis later that morning. He asked Father Van Roo to join him on the journey and for Father O'Flattery to fill in for him at St. Francis Xavier. He and Father Van Roo packed overnight bags and prepared to meet Robbie's family at the train station. At the house on Roanoke Drive, preparations from the journey were not going as smoothly. Robbie simply refused to wake up. It was not until he was doused repeatedly with cold water that he could finally be pulled from bed and dressed. His father had to carry him to his uncle's car so that they could drive to the train station. Surprisingly, especially after other recent journeys in the automobile, the trip to the station was peaceful. By the time they were ready to board the train, Robbie was happy and smiling and seemed to be his old self again. For the most part, the journey to Maryland went smoothly. 
The Jesuits stayed in one compartment on the train and Robbie's family stayed in another. During the day, Robbie was completely at ease, reading, playing games, and watching the scenery go by. Father Van Roo spent most of his time reading, and Father Bowner began making preparations for Holy Week, the busiest time of the church year. He worked on his sermons and plans as much as he could, knowing that the trip to Maryland would have to be a short one so that he could get back to his church for this hectic time. It was around 11.30 p.m. on the overnight trip when Robbie began causing trouble. Father Bowdern heard a porter in the corridor outside. He was outside Robbie's family's compartment. Soon another porter joined him. The two Jesuits followed and found Robbie acting erratically, unable to calm down. He fidgeted and spoke loudly, talking nonstop. He had been repeatedly pressing the service button, summoning the porters to their compartment. Father Bowdern took one of the porters aside. He told the man that the staff should ignore any further service calls from that compartment. The porter, sensing something was wrong that went beyond mere mischief, asked the priest what was going on with the boy. Father Bowdern told him that the boy was just, quote, high strung. Robbie eventually went to sleep and woke up well before the train arrived in Washington on Tuesday, April 5th. He seemed happy to be home and his parents wondered again if perhaps what was ailing him had been left behind in the other city. Father Bowdern and Father Van Roo checked into a local hotel and Father Bowdern began making plans to try and get Robbie some assistance in Maryland. He needed to return home soon. Holy Week was quickly approaching and he had much to do, but he would stay in the Washington area until someone could be found to continue the exorcism. Father Bowder met with numerous church officials in Maryland. They would do nothing with Robbie's case other than allow Father Bowder to continue the exorcism while he was there. Well, this was not Father Bowder's intention. Because of Robbie's growing inclination toward violence, he wanted to see the boy confined and restrained, preferably in a Catholic mental institution, before the exorcism could be continued. But it was a wasted effort. No one wanted any part of the situation. He visited several different hospitals and even a mental institution run by nuns in Baltimore. The nuns told Father Bowder that they would take Robbie in, but the doctors at the institution objected. If Robbie was admitted as a psychiatric patient, they would agree, but they could not afford the ridicule and possible financial loss associated with an exorcism. The state of Maryland subsidized much of their patient care, and for this reason, no one in an official capacity could learn of a possessed boy being admitted to the facility. Disappointed, Father Bowder made one last telephone call. As a worst-case scenario, he called the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis, and he was assured by Brother Rector Cornelius that Robbie could be placed there if necessary. Father Bowdern thanked him, but kept trying to find a place for the boy in Maryland. While this was taking place, Robbie was trying to adjust to being home again. Because he'd missed so much school, his parents had decided to hold him back until fall. This left him with plenty of time to stay home, do chores, and enjoy the warm spring weather. He spent most of one day working on a small garden plot in the backyard and cutting the lawn. He seemed to be enjoying himself, and when bedtime came that night, he seemed contented and sleepy. Robbie went to bed around 8.30 p.m., and for a time, all was quiet. Then his parents and his grandmother began to hear the sounds of something stirring upstairs. The noises were faint at first, a quiet thumping, but then Robbie cried out. It was happening again. Father Bowdern and Father Van Roo arrived a half hour later and found Robbie shaking in his bed. Without hesitation, Father Bowdern began to read from the prayers of exorcism. He'd barely begun to read when Robbie began to thrash about on the bed and he ripped open his pajama shirt. On the skin of his chest was a large scratch that was tearing across the skin as the two priests watched. 
Suddenly, two more scratches opened up and appeared on his chest. The marks on his body had created a number four. Father Bowdern continued with the ritual and more skin brandings appeared. Robbie cried out and his mother pulled away the sheets to reveal deep lines on his legs, oozing with blood. They ran from his thighs to his ankles. As the exorcism continued, more slashing marks were seen on his skin. Robbie winced in pain. When Father Bowdern asked for the name and departure day of the demon, the reply came as bloody scratches in the boy's flesh. The words hell and spite appeared, as well as a series of numbers which were imprinted on his skin. Four, eight, 10, and 16. As Robbie continued to squirm on the bed, hissing with pain, a strange dark voice issued from his mouth. Robbie's parents swore it was not a voice they'd ever heard before. It croaked at them. I will not go until a certain word is pronounced, and this boy will never say it. Robbie cursed, howled, and spit. Mucus, saliva, and blood spattered the faces of both priests, drenching amounts of liquid that perplexed Father Van Roo. He estimated that the boy was able to spit as much as a half pint of liquid in a matter of minutes. It was enough so that the faces of both men were soaking and so that Father Bowdern's glasses were so crusted he was barely able to see. Father Van Roo was sometimes forced to wipe off his glasses with a towel and hold them in front of Father Bowdern so that he could continue to read. Robbie, who had been hitting his targets without ever opening his eyes, stopped spitting and began to sing in a cackling, high-pitched voice. He sang dirty songs and added to them with further obscenities and blasphemies that were not recorded in the diary. As he continued, he sang faster and faster, twitched and contorted with more anger, and seemed almost to vibrate with energy. Father Bowdern continued to read, believing that the boy was building towards some sort of breaking point. Meanwhile, Robbie chortled his high, keening laugh and continued singing. Exhausted, Father Bowdern looked over at the clock on the nightstand. It was nearly 2 a.m. As soon as he turned his head, Robbie growled at him. I'll keep you till six, he said in the same deep voice that had come from his throat earlier. To prove it, I'll put him to sleep and then wake him up. The words left his lips and then instantly Robbie went from thrashing about on the bed to a deep sleep. The priest tried several times to wake him, but they could not. Father Van Roo even pinched him on the arm, but the boy never flinched. He was now in a state of sleep so complete that it was unnatural. Then, 15 minutes later, Robbie was startled awake. He was so frightened he was shaking, but he was unable to express just what it was that was bothering him. Father Bowdern steeled himself for another four hours of terror as the demon had promised, but it never occurred. A few moments later, Robbie fell back to sleep again, and this time he stayed that way. The night was over. When the Jesuits left the house, they returned to their hotel two troubled and worried men. Robbie was not getting any better, and Father Bowdern had still not found anywhere in the area that would take him in. He was beginning to fear he would have to return Robbie to St. Louis. The next day, Father Bowdern prayed for the strength to continue. He knew he had to get Robbie into a place where he could be restrained. He believed that Robbie could be saved, but he also now believed that things would get worse before they got better. After another fruitless day of searching for a hospital for Robbie in Maryland, Father Bowdern sat down with the boy's parents and convinced them to return to St. Louis and allow him to continue the exorcism at the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Father Van Roo arranged for a return trip by train and he called the Alexians to let them know that Robbie would be arriving at the hospital on Sunday, April 10th. It was Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. The priest had dinner with the family that evening and at about eight o'clock, 
Robbie went into the bathroom to brush his teeth. A few minutes later, everyone in the house heard cursing and screaming coming from the bathroom. Robbie's mother ran in to see what was going on and immediately called for Father Bowder. And as he hurried in, the boy was hurling spit from his mouth and howling obscenities. Father Bowder later told Father Bishop he'd never seen the boy act so diabolical and that his words were so foul he refused to say them aloud so that they could be recorded in the diary. For three hours, Father Bowdern and Father Van Roo prayed while Robbie spattered the priest with mucus and spit and jerked his hand up and down as an imitation of masturbation. He tore at the priest's clothing, threw pillows, tore the sheets, sang in a high-pitched warble, and acted as if he were responding to the Latin phrases of the prayer with jumbled phrases of his own. When he spoke, he did so in the deep, rumbling voice that was now becoming familiar to the Jesuits. Father Bowdern had hoped to administer Holy Communion that night, but Robbie was too frantic and wild for him to be able to do so. During a brief moment of calm, he gave Robbie, for the first time, a mild sedative. Within a few minutes, it began to work, and he drifted off into normal sleep. On Saturday morning, Father Bowdern, Father Van Roo, Robbie, and his mother boarded a train that was bound for St. Louis. The diary reported that Robbie was normal all day. He underwent a short spell upon retiring in the evening. By this point in the possession, the diary was only providing details of events that were different from those already recorded. The continued urinating, the horrific smells, curses, and obscenities had become part of the routine and were rarely noted in new pages. Father Bishop also left out what the gravelly voice that came from Robbie said about the priests and the assistants themselves. Walter Halloran told me that Robbie seemed to be very sensitive to the insecurities of everyone present, from the priests to Halloran and even Robbie's mother and father. He constantly tried to foster distrust among all of them. Father Halloran recalled, I don't know how he could have known some of the things he said to us, whether he overheard things, sensed them, or perhaps had a way of knowing them that we can't explain, but he came up with some pretty embarrassing stuff. None of it was ever recorded, and I wouldn't want to bring any of it back up again. Also unrecorded was the habit that Father Bowdern developed to hammer away at the demon. Father Halloran later remembered that he would stop his prayers in Latin and translate two of the phrases from the prayers into English. He would order the demon to state his name, then would pause for a response. Robbie would usually reply with more spitting and cursing. After that, Father Bowdern demanded the demon reveal the day and hour that he would leave the boy. After that, Robbie became even more violent. Father Bowdern had explained to Halloran that the exorcist was supposed to take note of the prayers or phrases that seemed to have the most effect on the demon and use them with greater stress and frequency. Since Robbie became so angry when he asked these questions, he knew he'd found a weak spot. With this in mind, he asked the questions over and over again, tormenting the spirit that had taken control of the boy. He hoped the demon was so angry because it knew that its time was nearly done. It would have to leave Robbie soon. Or so Father Browder often prayed. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. 
Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 33, which is the 19th episode of season 2, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. An official grown-up, because I did not interrupt you this time. This is the first time in quite a while. It is. I haven't interrupted you with food chewing, popcorn nonsense yeah just, just general nonsense. i will say now you're in, you're in my head though so now when i'm reading this i'm like yeah, you're I'm being very careful it. because i may have been sabotaging your notes so uh but i did not i took it off it's so. the dangers of google docs apparently. I, it is it is now so, i, I kind of want to know what you were putting uh, in nothing, there but nothing i just wanted to you know see how closely you were reading it so. i'm ron burgundy like yeah. one of those kind <laughs> yeah of things? one of those kind of things yeah you can hit undo and keep going back until you that's true. I could I well, could see now. the change history. Yeah, well, I think well. it's probably not worth looking for. It's very juvenile. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ofi- official grown up and, and being juvenile. Yeah, well, I love it. Hey, I didn't interrupt you. So and yes. I took that off. So technically, that's mature. It's like so. it never happened. Exactly. Uh, so we have a couple of things we wanted to talk about um, ahead of time. Yes. So we had, or before we get started, we had some feedback about our Halloween <laughs> yeah, episode. Just a little bit, yeah. Yeah, do you want to well, explain Well, there that? were a few movies, that, and you know, la- in our last episode, we, we talked about some of our our uh, listener mail mm-hmm. and uh, some suggestions that people had about movies uh, that I don't think anybody was going to add to any lists, but they were just, you know, saying, hey, have you seen this kind yes. of thing? Yeah, and, and we appreciate the feedback. We, we had a, I had a little bit of feedback from people who, um, 
you know, namely Misty Taylor, um, who was the biggest complainer, but there were others uh, who mentioned the same thing. I got a text from her that immediately said, what, no poltergeist? Mm-hmm. And I didn't go into a lengthy explanation for her as to why I left it off the list because I thought, well, that's perhaps something I should mention on the podcast because a few other people asked me about that too. Yeah. Um, but I know she listens, so I know she'll hear this. And I wanted to let her know that I'm sending her a Zelda action figure. She'll know what that means. Um, anyway, the, the, the whole thing about Poltergeist is while I do enjoy the movie, I, I do. I, I, I like the cast. I mean, I like the, the idea behind it. Um, I like the scary old preacher man in part two. I think he's scarier than anything that happens in the other two movies. But um, while I like the movie, it's very, I find it very Disney-esque for a ghost movie. Yeah. Or or for a horror film in general. It's um, like anything with most Steven Spielberg movies, it goes too far. Um, You know, like, you know, I, 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 before we, started to record i i was talking about the scene in the bathroom where he's like ripping his face what does that have to do with ghosts i don't well how why do what your house is haunted why does that have to do with it it was just a chance to put something else in the movie and you know it's got some great stuff in it it does and i I mean i like the depiction of the ghost hunters with their equipment and the and i love the scene where all the ghosts are coming down the stairs and i mean there's good stuff in it but i wouldn't put it on my list of my favorites, I guess. That's I, fair. You know, um, you know, I've, I've got a few movies like that that I would qualify as ghost movies, but I don't think that they are at the level of what we talked about last time. There That's no, all. There are no 13 ghosts. Is that what you're well, saying? You, know, I don't, you put that on the list. I didn't. <laughs> you agree. I do like, I do really enjoy that movie, It's a movie, guilty though. pleasure. It is a guilty pleasure. It's, it's, um, it's like a movie I mentioned to Cody. We were talking about um, something we've got in the works for January, and we'll talk more about it in the next couple of episodes because we'd like some of your input on this as well. Uh, but we were talking about another guilty pleasure that involved a ventriloquist dummy, <laughs> and it's a but it's a great movie for a guilty pleasure. Yeah, I mean, um, so what? At least is glaring at me because she hates ventriloquist dummies. But I really like this movie, um, and that it's a it's like an entire legion of ventriloquist dummies of all different kinds nice <laughs> I, I just like the movie but anyway we'll we'll talk more we'll about some of the things we've got in mind for um some of our winter shows before the next season starts but awesome. anyway speaking of winter we should talk about a couple of things here and yeah. then we'll get rolling on this episode because yes i know the uh, the story itself was <laughs> rather lengthy this time and uh, so we we don't want to we don't want to lose you with uh, too much outside conversation but um, we, uh, we've got an event coming up on the 30th of November. Uh, this is the last show we'll have before that happens. And, um, that is our dinner and spirits. It's our holiday dinner and spirits, um, in Alton. Uh, it's dinner and, uh, a couple of short ghost hunts at two of the most haunted locations in town. Uh, we still have a few spots left for that. So if you're interested, uh, we, we hope to see you there. Uh, our winner, uh, goes to the River Road dinner tours are on the schedule for January, February, March, and April. And uh, those are a little different than what we did in the fall. So if you, you came in the fall, it's a slightly different tour. Um, we're going to have dinner at a different place. Uh, we're still going to do uh, River Road. We've got a couple of other stops uh, that we didn't do um, during the fall. 
And then we're going to be having uh, dessert at the Aries Winery in Grafton. Um, another haunted spot in Grafton ended up at the Mineral Springs. Uh, so we've got, Lisa and I are doing four of those this winter because um, the Alton tours, of course, go year round. Uh, February 9th is our Dead of Winter event. Uh, Cody and I will be uh, doing a live show there yeah. uh, like we did last year, which uh, is, again, anything uh, can happen. It'll, um, it'll work. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. We had a good time in the last year, so we're, we're going to bring that back. And also, as I mentioned in our last episode, for those of you who uh, accidentally turned on the Travel Channel on Halloween night and were forced to sit through part of the Ghost Adventures show about their museum and they promised to open the Dybbuk box and didn't, um, we're going to let you find out about the real story behind the real that real box. Because uh, the guy who wrote the book, who was the original owner of that, uh, Jason Haxton, will be there at Dead of Winter. And that right, that alone is reason to come. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, then, but don't let it deter you that Cody and I are doing a live episode. I know. We might lose <laughs> some people. Well, you know what? No, no. We're going to go first. We'll save Jason for last. Ah, so, yeah. Smart. But anyway, that is from 10 to 4. And it's for a good cause. Um, we uh, The admission is free with a non-perishable item, food item, um, you know, paper towel, toilet paper, light bulbs, garbage bags, diapers, toothpaste, whatever. Um, something that could be used for local food banks because they take a real hit after the holidays and they need a, they need a jolt in February. And, and we've been doing this event for a number of years now and we're providing a jolt for this stuff. We get, I mean, our, our ghost people are uh, a generous bunch and they we've been bringing a lot of stuff and it's been really great so uh, we want to keep that going this year um, then we've got a couple of after hour things that night ghost hunt at the church ghost hunt at the mineral springs and then um, dinner with the devil if you're not tired of hearing about the exorcism yet uh, you can come to this because it will be a little different than what you've been hearing uh, for one thing, there's pictures. So yeah. we do not have pictures. They don't on translate the too well. No, on they the don't. Podcast. And we'll have some things that are, are not part of the podcast as part of that dinner. So we'd love to have you on that. Um, we also have one more event, an evening with event coming up uh, March 16th, our, our evening with Lizzie Borden. Um, at the, it'll be at the Mineral Springs, and I'll be hosting a, uh, well, Lisa and I will be hosting the dinner, and then I'll be talking about. Um, the, the Borden murders and what really happened and the hauntings at the uh, the Borden house. It's now a bed and breakfast, and we'll be talking about all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be fun. So we have a lot of stuff coming up, so we're excited about uh, for our winter events. Yeah, and the uh, the Haunted America Conference website right. is now up. It is. It is now up. Um, the conference is June 21st and 22nd in Alton. I know a lot of you came last year. A lot of our listeners came, and I expect we're going to see a lot more yeah. this year. Tickets for that are going to go on sale January 7th, uh, and that is for general admission tickets, which there are a limited number of those. And, of course, for the after-hour events, we actually have 13 different after-hour events Dang. this year, a lot of stuff we've never done before uh, as part of the conference. So you can check that out. You can just go to the website. Um, it's just ghostconference.net, and um, the, the entire schedule is up, all the after-hour events, all the speakers, the bios, all that stuff is there. And you can see what's coming up. But we're, we're already excited about it. And, man, I mean, tickets are going to go on sale in like a – well, just a little over a month now mm -hmm. by the time everybody hears this. Time flies, I know man. it, man. No kidding. Yeah, it'll be fun. I'll be there doing some kind of, some yep. kind of spiel. I'm not yep. exactly we'll sure what. We'll have set up again. And uh, I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll cook something up 
Cody will have something going yep. on next year. Some kind of interactive uh, thing again yep, with the exactly. with participants. It'll be fun. You're going to have to list all the reasons why you disagree with Troy's list of ghost movies, apparently. It's going to be. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can do that. We can, we can do that. Awesome. All right, so we ready to dive in? Yeah, I'm ready if you're ready. All right, so when we last left off, Father Bowden, he re- decided to remove Robbie from the house and wanted to move him to the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Uh, and you wrote a little bit about these monks and uh, how they were very progressive for the time. So they had banned the use of chains and handcuffs and straitjackets and were the first, like among Which the first. Which nobody to... did back then. Yeah. I mean, that was not standard. And they were the first to treat alcoholism as a disease, right. which is very, right. I mean, that's very forward thinking. Right, right. And that's, th- those were the two things they were known for actually treating. By the time they had established themselves in the United States, they were really known for treating the mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And then the alcoholism thing was kind of an offshoot of that mm-hmm. at the time. Is it out of necessity? Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's, that's you know, I, w- in the 19th century, when you are put into a mental institution, it could be for <laughs> a lot of crazy Anything, stuff. Yeah. And so that the offshoot of that was alcoholism, but they treated it as, as an illness rather than as, you know, just a bad habit that mm-hmm. people had. And they were in the in at that time because they were a Catholic institution, were treating priests with alcohol problems, right? Uh, which was as common then as it is now, and um, but they did that in secret because no one needed to know. Mm-hmm. And so it would be up to the the Alexian brothers when they went back to work, you know, when they resumed their duties, that kind of thing. So they kept secrets. So. You know, Father Bowder needed a place that he could put Robbie that was secure, right. and a place that could be kept secret. And the Alexian brothers were the obvious. Some choice discretion, for that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That actually reminds me of a little bit. Um, I won't go into it, but look up Craig Ferguson, and he talks about when he was in rehab, and his uh, he said it's not all glamorous like people think. And he said my roommate was a vicar from the church, yeah. and he goes into his impression of him and everything, and it's it's hilarious. But yeah. Google it; yeah. it's a great great video. <laughs> um, but uh, so they decided to put Robbie into a security room. Uh, and for the first time in a long time, he and his father slept peacefully mm-hmm. through the night. Right. I thought it was strange, though, that they, he only stayed one night and then goes back, right? Yeah, well— or goes back home? Or? Yeah, it, I, and I, I wondered about that as well because it seemed like it was the place where, you know, maybe they saw it as counterproductive because, you know, when they, they performed the exorcism that night, as they did every night, and Robbie, nothing happened. Because Robbie was so terrified and intimidated by the location. I bet. It's almost like his fear pushed whatever it was back far enough that they were never going to get it to leave under those circumstances. So that's the only thing I can think of because I wondered about that too. So they took him out of the house and then proceeded to go ahead and take him back home because he seemed fine. Right. You know? um, and then as uh, once again, everything seemed fine, but of course it wasn't, you know. So. Yeah, and so, uh, so they go back, and after the first night of being out of uh, the hospital, the bed starts shaking again and everything, and this is when Fa- Father Bowden decides he wants to convert Robbie to Catholicism, right. which he thought would be a big kind of game changer or like a, a weapon. A, Another a weapon, weapon okay. in their arsenal, I guess, um, by, by converting him into the church. Uh, because, and I think we talked about this in the very first episode, that the family— all went back and forth between Lutheran and Catholic. Mm-hmm. There was a real mix of, of that in the family. And it seemed like most of the Catholics in the, in the family at the time were non-practicing. Right. Um, and so they wanted to get Robbie, you know, reinforced. It had never really been taught 
mm-hmm. you know, because his dad didn't practice or anything, and so they didn't really put much emphasis on it. But by having Robbie baptized into the church and, you know, taking communion and confession, um, they felt that it would be something that he could use in his own battle, you know, right. against what was going on. So that was Father Bowdern's thought behind it, which, I mean, seems like a solid thought process. It, it just didn't work very well, right? But, you it, know, at least at first. It makes sense. And I was just uh, thinking about how he goes from the baptism to First Communion, like, very quick. I had to wait, like, seven well, years it in was, between it there. Was, I know. It but was, I get it. It was really pushing it. I mean, plus he was, you know— already older than most kids once they start learning mm-hmm. catechism and stuff. So yeah. he was already older. And I think Father Bowdern was in a hurry. Mm. And, you know, he couldn't do, wanted to do the baptism, but couldn't do his first confession because he was insane. Lady, right. Uh, you know, and so he just gave him conditional absolution. And right. it, it's kind of like the, the, the fast track, fast track to Catholicism, yeah. you know, essentially is what it boiled down to. I like it. So, uh, is this when he? This is when he gets back. Is this is when he actually breaks Holleran's nose and punches yes. Van Roo, yes. right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We already talked about breaking noses yeah, and how know. terrible that can be. And so, we touched on it last time. But they thought that the X carved on his leg meant that the demon demon would leave on March 25th, which right. was the Holy Feast of Annunciation, when Gabriel announced Christ's birth. But it was some creative math that went into that too. Yes. See, and that. So we also, and you know, we talked about this in the last episode. Some of the wishful thinking that went into some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're not even sure that the X really, well, obviously it didn't mean anything. So what, what was it? We don't know Uh, because it didn't, as it turned out, you know, spoiler alert, you know, the demon doesn't leave on March 25th. Um, In fact, things get worse, you know, on March 25th. But um, I think that that made a, you know, a little creative math went into that and it made it, it, it would seem like a good idea because it was a, a very holy day, mm-hmm. you know, with Feast of Annunciation, um, it seemed like the perfect day. Well, that, that, that's got to be the day. It's got to be 10 days. It's got to be the 25th. Right. You know. And I want to talk about that math a little bit here, because <laughs> yeah. what happened is, um, I had to read this like 10 times. It said, right. I will stay 10 days and then return after the four days are up. Such a statement would only make sense if the demon had returned on a Wednesday. If Friday, March 25th had been <laughs> yeah. the 10th day and the demon had remained silent, uh, absent on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, the writings make sense. However, Robbie had not shown any signs of the possession on Wednesday night, and the demon had not manifested again until Thursday. This is how I know that it really is a demon because he's making me do math. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, exactly. it's terrible. I was yeah, like, what? Exactly. I know. Yeah, but see, that that's the whole thing, though. See, that's the whole thing about this story is that you can take this story and turn it into whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I mean, again, we, we go back to the very beginning of this and I, and I, I talk about this in every episode, but you go back to the very beginning of it. Something happened, obviously something happened, but you can make it be anything you want it to be. I mean, it could be a, a poltergeist thing. It could be a crazy kid. It could be a demon. I mean, it, it could be anything, you know? And so, but you can, you can use elements of the story to justify your way of thinking. Yeah. And that's exactly what they were doing here. Now we've, oh, that X must mean 10 days. Well, how, now how do we make that 10 days? Well, then we say that, well, you know, it, it must've started on Wednesday, but no one noticed, yeah. you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not telling people what to believe here and I'm not even saying it can't be, but there are problems with this, whole story yeah you know and i and i'm certainly not in any way denigrating the 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 thoughts the ideas the um 
you know, the, the, the religious nature of the people involved. Uh, I think everyone was very sincere and truly believed what they were doing was right. But I think that, well, and as Father Bowner found out, you know, he fooled himself, and it, you know, but he believed it was the demon who fooled him, who fooled him into thinking right. these things. And, um, you know, either it, it was either the demon or it was Father Bowdern himself. But he admitted he was wrong later. So, you know, you just got to see what goes into this. Yeah, you know? no, so. and I mean, I, I can definitely see, I mentioned earlier, trying to justify everything you're doing and i mean give yourself some glimmer of hope as to oh, yeah, when this absolutely. could be over absolutely um with a with a due date or something uh that definitely makes a lot of sense a little side note when we talked about the holy feast of annunciation i just wanted to say um from going to catholic school if you really dive into it um angels at gabriel especially they're badass well yeah absolutely you know it always make every time i think about every time i think about angels and here's you know here's here's the the movie thing of tr- that runs through Troy's head constantly. Anything about movies. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I think about angels, I think of that B movie, the, the, the prophecy. prophecy. I have a quote in here yeah. about that. And you think about you know that angels, and and it's true. I mean, it's an accurate thing in the movie. Can I read the whole quote? Go ahead, because it's probably the same thing I'm about to say. And I wasn't going to necessarily mention it, but since you're... Okay, so it said, did you ever notice how in the Bible, whenever God needed to punish someone or make an example, or whenever God needed a killing, he sent an angel? Did you ever wonder what a creature like that must be like? A whole existence spent praising your God, but always with one wing dipped in blood. Would you ever really want to see an angel? Yeah, because angels do all God's dirty work. Yeah. I mean, if he wants a city destroyed, send an angel. You want to have an army wiped out, send an angel. I mean, the the whole thing about, you know, this whole imaginary thing we have of of angels being these wonderful, you know, that that whole thing only comes from like one mention in the New Testament Mm -hmm. of Gabriel showing up to tell Mary, hey, you know, you're going to have a baby. Otherwise, that's like the only like decent thing he does yeah. ever because you know they fought like this you know in biblical lore mm-hmm. they fought this huge war you know there was a war that was fought with all these you know between angels the ones who defected and the ones who stayed and it's kind of like they're terrifying and the whole idea the recent idea uh, that angels are these benevolent guardian, you know, the whole idea of guardian angels came out of the Victorian era. Yeah. Um, in that, that whole era of celebrating death, you know, there, there must be angels watching over children. Angels don't give a shit about your kids. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if they're really out there, these guys are like the SWAT team, the SEALs and the Green Berets rolled into one with supernatural powers. Right. They're just going out killing people that God tells them to kill. So there's your angels for you. I, I've always laughed about that. Every time people talk about all the wonderful things. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Angels did show up to celebrate in the skies with the shepherds. Okay. But really, we don't know what that meant either. But yeah. they really di- didn't do nice things. I mean, they were like, you know, badass warriors. Hey. So that's what they were designed to be. Are you telling me the Old Testament's full of a lot of brutal stories? Oh Is gosh. that what you're saying? Yeah. Also, angels, uh, another movie, Dogma. You like Dogma? Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about dogma. Yeah, that's a different yeah. take, but yeah, uh, it, it is a different the, take. Talks but, about the angel of death, right? And... Right. Yeah, I just always base mine on prophecy on the original because the sequels are bad. But yeah, the original is pretty terrifying. Well, I'm glad that so. you, I, I put the quote down, but I that's wasn't. Funny. I wasn't going to say it, but it's since funny. you started talking about it, yeah, because yeah. hey, Christopher Walken. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so, 
Robbie starts. Oh, we already talked about it. He was picking on a heavyset man uh, that was <laughs> yeah, in the room. Yeah. Um, but also another weird thing that happened. Father O'Hara claims that Robbie flew through the air, and when he touched the ritual book, it dissolved. Yeah. That's one of the claims that, well, we, that's, that we have. And see, that's one of those that's one of those third-hand stories that we got with, you know, here's a guy who says he was there. Father Bishop never makes a note of that. Says he was there and told it to a friend who then told it to someone else. Who right. happened to be the guy who wrote the book, The Exorcist. But this is a story, what is that, like fourth hand now? Yeah. So, you know, you you take that stuff with a grain of salt. That tenth night happens, and then Robbie slept peacefully right. for right. a night. I know. But then the next night, he said he felt sick. And then eventually he starts reciting this weird poem. Oh, yeah. I have Which it. makes like zero sense. I know. I have really, it here. Can I, can I read it? Yeah, sure. Okay. Sure, if you want. So the poem goes, I will stay 10 days, but will return in four days. If Robbie stays, dot, 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 gone to lunch. If you stay and become a Catholic, it will stay away. God will take it away four days after it has gone 10 days. God is getting powerful. The last day when it quits, it will leave a sign on my front. Father Bishop. All people that mangle with me will die a terrible death. So yeah, yeah, that yeah. lot going on there. Um, and then uh, apparently it's somebody—it's like if you worked at the worst bar in the world, and, it was and like there a was beat a drunk poet. guy with his head on the <laughs> bar in front of you reciting this. I thought you were going to say a beat poet. Oh uh, well, that too, because yeah. that's kind of what it sounded like too. I can, I, I, I think I have read that. Over and over and over, and it still really makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, you could, but again. You, you can, can make read sense whatever of it. you want into it. Yeah. And the problem I have with the poem and the writing on the sheet and the writing on the newsprint and all that stuff, and then, you know, and then something else that I know you're going to get to, all of that happened when Father Bishop wasn't there mm-hmm. to write it down. So all he had to go by was everyone's recollection of what it was. But yes, there were the notes that were written down, but the whole thing is just so weird. Yeah. It's unlike anything else that has happened during the exorcism and nothing else like it will happen. It's out of character. During the yeah. rest of it. It's just such a weird anomaly. It's like, um, you know, a, it's like what I, you know, you and I are often talk about, we're, we talk about a lot of movie type stuff, but it's like a 10 episode Netflix series that didn't need to be 10 episodes. It really only needed to be nine. Yeah. So there's this one fucked up episode around seven or eight that really doesn't work. Mm-hmm. This is that episode. Yeah. You know, this is that, that's that, that piece right there is the part that doesn't work that well for me because it just seems so completely out of whack. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't happen. Maybe it did, but it just seems to make no sense it's out of left field yeah um but we are going to talk about it because it's it's interesting so this is when i guess was it the uncle that worked at a printing place or yeah. something like that so they had access to really big pieces of paper right so he starts to, what do they call it is it scrawling or, or yeah just it? just like um like automatic writing just okay completely random writing on the paper whatever was coming into his head kind right of thing. so starts writing stuff down so wait, is he writing or is it the the cousin. Well, no, his co- the cousin is trying to keep track of the things that Robbie is mumbling. Oh, right. Okay. And so she's writing that stuff down, and then he's writing stuff on the paper. Okay. Um, but I don't know if my my impression of it was that most of what he was writing wasn't making sense. Mm-hmm. It was like gibberish on the paper, just 
scratched marks, but he was saying it out loud. Uh, kind of like when he was writing with his finger on the sheet. He right. was speaking it aloud. And that's why they and got so, him the paper. Right. So she was trying to make notes of what he was saying. Got it. Well, I hope they gave the kid like a crayon and not a pencil or something sharp. Well, see, that's, that's, and that's what I said too. Did you? Is, is, is that, you know, why would you give that kid a pencil? <laughs> I mean, because, you know, Father Bowdern hesitated about the pencil and I thought, yeah, because he's going to stab somebody hey, yeah, with you already it. got hit in the yeah, nose. I, yeah, I, was, I would not. Yeah, I mean, everyone here has been injured by this kid. You're going to give him a sharp yeah. object? Let's see, that's a, what didn't really. Give him a Again, shift. see, that was that weird thing that was like seemed kind of like the bowl of ice cream. Really? Yeah, yeah. With uh, the bowl so of ice cream. I have some funny things to talk about with that in a minute. <laughs> what? Uh, but I, I do want to do some of these uh, quotes from Robbie's writing, though, just yeah, for the sake sure. of, uh, yeah. So said, I speak the language of the persons I will put in Robbie's mind when he makes up his mind that the priests are wrong about writing English. I will, that is the devil will try to get his mother and dad to hate the Catholic Church. I will answer to the name of spite, which we mentioned yeah. before. And then another statement was, uh, I am the devil himself. And then, yeah, which, which as I mentioned, is like, you know, go into a insane asylum. And I think I heard this. I think I read this somewhere else. I may have read it in Blatty's exorcist book, as a matter of fact, but, but to say that a demon in a possession to say that they're the devil himself is like a crazy guy, you know, in the asylum saying he's Napoleon. Right. I mean, yeah, it should, it should be yeah. a red flag because he doesn't have time for that. Yeah, you know the devil does not have time for that. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's, you know, if, random it, possession. Yeah, so. I mean, he should be able to overpower it's not a small really child. The devil. I yeah. know it's it's lame. And then so yeah. there was one of the drawings uh, that stunned Father Bishop. However, it was a human face. It was too badly drawn to recognize. But next to it were two words: <laughs> "Dead Bishop." Yeah, which that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, Thanks. And so they decide. This is when they're like, "Okay, we got to get this kid baptized yeah. and asap." But they scheduled his baptism on April Fool's Day, which I, know, I right? thought was... Seems like a bad plan. Come on, so, guys. I anyway, know. so they're on their way to the baptism, and everything goes fine on the way there? So, oh, yeah. No, no, no. Shit really goes great. crazy. So here's what happened. You know what it is? Yeah. It's the scene from um, The Omen. Yeah. When, the, you know, they're taking Damien to the... wet. Is it a, a wedding they're going to? They're going to a church yeah, for a some church reason. Or something. And the kid loses his shit in the car. This yes. is exactly what that reminded me of, except... You know, 20 years earlier. So, you know, so. The, the passage or the quote is, uh, Father Bowden saw Robbie being wrestled to the sidewalk while screaming, kicking, swinging his fist in all directions. His mother waited in the car, too terrified to get out. The two men began dragging Robbie up the church steps. this was the steps. beginning of the uncle's anger management issues, too. Yes. <laughs> he was spitting, cursing, and braying a man maniacal laugh. As he was carried inside, he began to howl like a dog and vomit mucus and blood on all three men. Father Bowden grabbed a pitcher of ice water from the kitchen refrigerator and threw it into Robbie's face. Calmed him down only for a moment. His father and uncle pulled him up to his feet, and he suddenly went limp and refused to walk. He laughed and cursed him up every flight of steps. So this exact same scene happened to me on my 21st birthday. <laughs> it sounds like what my dad and my friends had yeah, to go through. Right. Um, but they, but they couldn't take him into the church. So he's right. like, all right, take him to the rectory. Right, back to the rectory. And eventually said, okay, we're going to give him communion the next day. And it took two hours to actually get this kid yeah. to not spit stuff to out. just take a wafer. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. And so then they decide, okay, well, got to go home. See, you know, I mean, stick it in his mouth and clamp his jaw shut. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you really want to give it to him. Yeah, so. blend it up and just I mean, force I think, I think it, when it, at, after two hours, you're being too kind. Yes. So, I mean, have you ever given a dog a pill? Yeah, and that's right. essentially the same just thing. Just roll up the wafer and a bunch of peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, and, and, right. <laughs> you know. A bunch of peanut butter. <laughs> so the ride home was also eventful. Uh, he's grabbing father <laughs> of. Flaherty? Flattery. Flattery. By I, the I guess. 
I, I'm, I'm unsure on the pronunciation, okay. so I just went with whatever rolled off my tongue. Got it. Um, so I and no one, no one's gonna hear that except for Cody when he listens. You know, when he listened to the, the me doing the story. I there's a, there's a pause there where I go, okay, really, I'm not sure how to pronounce <laughs> this dude's name. So we're gonna go with this, and I it may not be right. Um, so I apologize to anyone who. Or has that name or recognizes it because if I'm pronouncing it wrong, and it's very possible that I am. Yeah, well, I'm sure some somebody on Twitter will let us know or something. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. So my question is: so we grab him by the neck while they're driving. At what point do you just put the kid in the trunk? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like come like, on, he's a he's tape, a hazard. Duct tape and a trunk. Yes. So, so the night is chaotic, and uh, this you mentioned this earlier, but Robbie eats ice cream because <laughs> because mom wants to give him ice cream, and the priest is like, you know what, fuck it, give him, give <laughs> that's, him ice cream. Yeah, that's kind of where I think that's to the point where this is where we're at now. Yes. It's just it's just give him ice cream, but don't give him a sharp spoon. Right. right? And you know, so what happens? Gouge out someone's eye with it. And what happens then is eventually the priests have to chase them around the house, and I can't, <laughs> yeah, I imagine chaos, a Scooby Doo scene oh, yeah, where they're running in and out so of doors. And that's I tried to even read it that way because the whole thing is just. Chaos. At one point, Literal it's chaos. like it's the priests are chasing Robbie, and then Robbie turns around, and he's chasing the priest, and then they look hey, at each I'm, other and they go through what? doors. It's the ice cream. I'm telling that's, you, yes, I'm exactly. gonna, all that sugar I, this before is bed. Boil down to the ice cream. So that was a bad idea. Uh, so at one point, and I am no expert on exorcisms, but I'm going to say giving the possessed person a bowl of ice cream yep. in the middle of the ritual is not a good plan. I so mean, that's you, just me. But, he already you know. has ample fluids. Why would you? Yeah, yeah really. I mean, why add to it? Anyway, because you know, eating ice cream, you get all that mucus. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that seems like a really bad idea. Oh, and then it's going to be cold too. <laughs> just be even weirder. Oh, anyway, so at one point. Uh, <laughs> He reads a passage in Latin demanding that the demon reveal its yeah, name here we and go. hour of departure. Here we go. Robbie interrupted him, repeating the Latin words exactly, and then adding on to the end, stick it up your ass. <laughs> First off. Which is my favorite. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's I hilarious. Uh, and well, then, I'm sure no one thought it was hilarious at the time. No. It is I, hilarious in hindsight. Well, also, when I first read this, when I read this, I thought that he said stick it up your ass in Latin <laughs> as well, <laughs> oh, yeah, which I was like, been, that would be now proof. That would be proof, uh, right? But so I initially wrote down, does this mean that he met the you know exorcism criteria after the fact? But you immediately remarked on that. Can, can you well, talk about yeah, that? Well, yeah, because... You know, there have been a lot of people who said, you know, see, told you, you know, because Father Bowdern, again, he he saw that as as further confirmation uh, because he believed that Robbie really was possessed. And people who also are convinced that Robbie was possessed will use that as evidence that, well, see, all the criteria was met uh, because he spoke in a foreign language, Mm -hmm. which is I have always said that at no time prior to receiving permission to conduct an exorcism, did Robbie speak in a foreign language, which is one of the Catholic Church's own criteria for possession. And uh, he didn't do it. But they gave him permission anyway, which has always sort of baffled me. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not saying he wasn't. Maybe he was possessed. You know, I'm not saying he wasn't. All I'm saying is that you guys have this set of rules that you're supposed to follow, but you're not following it. Right. Anyway, a lot of people will say, well, this is proof. You know, this is proof that this is, you know, he did speak in Latin. But, you know, listen, this kid has heard this stuff. I don't even know how many times because in, you know, a single night of doing this, they probably go through that entire ritual a dozen times. Mm -hmm. It's not that long. So he's heard it over and over and over. And we know that he was a smart kid. So how tough would it be to, to remember this? Right. You know, um, 
so he, he very, even Father Halloran said that, you know, years later, he said that he remembered Robbie would parrot some of the things that they said. So mm-hmm. this, it wasn't anything that, that convinced him, you know, that, oh, wow, you know, this is, that's it. Um, but then people will then further, when you bring that up, then they will further double down yeah. and say, well, you know, that's just the demon, you know, trying to trick you into believing he wasn't possessed. And it's like, there's no, there's no winning that no, argument. No, you can't win that it's argument with people who use, right, circular logic. And again, once again, uh, here we go. I'm going to say this once again. I'm not saying that he wasn't possessed. I'm not trying to make that argument. I'm just trying to put it all out there mm-hmm. so that people can decide for themselves. Yep, I think um, that's important. You know, again, uh, like we mentioned in the last episode, we're playing devil's advocate here. I love you it. You know, and but somebody has to because otherwise you go into this thing with blinders on and, you know, you look at everything that happens and say, oh, well, this absolutely is a demonic possession. And perhaps that's what you already believe, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I'm not saying... Again, one way or the other, I'm just trying to present the story. Right. And, you know, the, and look at it logically. Mm-hmm. You know, there are logical explanations for some of this stuff. I'm not saying all of it, but there are logical explanations for some of it. Yeah. And I think this is a case of that's a logical explanation. I mean, he, the kid has heard it a zillion times. It, it, sure. If I hadn't heard it as many times as he heard, I could parrot Latin for you too yep um my french teacher used to tell me all the time just we disolay i'm so sorry because i would do something dumb and i'd be like hey i you know i i really i forgot my homework i'm so you know what <laughs> well, should I, oh, i'm so sorry but you know nothing yeah. i can do for you kid right and exactly. you just you hear it so many times of yeah. course you're gonna be able to do that yeah. and i know you've told me that you kind of went back and forth on um your con- your conclusions with some of this yeah. stuff but i've and, I'll, I've and purposely, next episode i'll talk more about that and i've purposely so. i know i know you have told me some but i've purposely yeah. tried to not dig into that at all right. or read the end of the book right now because right. i don't want to be biased until we actually really yeah. talk about all sure. of it uh so i'm interested to see kind of where you land well our next episode i i will get into that further so awesome. So the marks start to uh, appear on his body again, but as well as the number 18, all kinds of times. crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, um, you know. Is 18. Do you know what that? No, would... no. And there's a whole bunch of numbers that end up showing up. Well, so yeah, so it's you know, four, so eight, including 10, Including the lyrics to the white album, all kinds of stuff. Well, I mean, so it's all these numbers. Show... Oh, okay. Oh, right. <laughs> I slipped that one in on you. Um... No, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that shows up that I, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Right. Well, if I... Well, ever, of course, maybe it does. You maybe know, it does. I mean, you could... Well, here's the thing. You could make it all mean something of course. if you really wanted to. It's so. just if I ever get five numbers that appear on me, play the lottery. <laughs> yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, but Robbie does something interesting this time. He acknowledges... The, he kind of wakes up and acknowledges like the possession, and he says he thinks he's going insane, right. which is right. a new kind of... That is a new wrinkle to the whole thing. Right. Um, because up to this point, whenever they've asked him, you know... Um, you know, at first they were like, you know, why are you acting like this? And he's like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And sincerely would, you know, and in a believable way would have an amnesia that couldn't be explained, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and up until that point, he never had any idea of what was happening, or at least that's the, you know, the impression everyone got. That's what he maintained. That's what he said. And now this on this particular day, he wakes up and says that he's terrified mm-hmm. and seems legitimately terrified and to the point that he tells his dad, 
we, we've got to get out of here because this place is making me crazy. Um, kind of like I'm sure it is making his relatives crazy. Yeah. So speaking yeah. of that, yeah, <laughs> Robbie gets he's ready to go home. Uh-huh. But before that, he decides, or he decides, I don't know. Or has something, another spell. Something happens, yeah. and he attacks his aunt, and his uncle says, fuck it, had enough, and... Uh, Robbie starts singing a creepy song. Well, he dro- first he grabbed him and drug him up the stairs. Well, okay, so he dra- yeah, drags him up the Threw stairs. Threw him into bed. Robbie starts singing this song saying, you will die tonight and a bunch of other stuff. And about it, his cousin. It's about yeah. his cousin. And then the we don't know who it was, yeah. but we can make an assumption. Father Bishop didn't say, but I'm pretty darn sure. S- someone tried to uh, yeah. smother Robbie with a pillow. <laughs> well, or at least to stop him from singing. Let's not say he tried to murder him. Right. But well, stop him from he singing, did try breathing, to stop him whatever. From, yeah, from singing. Yes. And That's which, one of my favorite parts, which I, I every time I hear this, and like I said, it's one of my favorite parts because every time I think about it, I'm kind of like, what took you so long? Yeah. I, it, I mean, I probably would have done it a long time before. Yeah. There's no way. We And we discussed this in our last episode. Uh, I would have gotten them a hotel or something mm-hmm. um, because I don't think I could have taken it this no. long. I really don't. It's so. one thing, you know, if the kid's freaking out and everything, but he starts getting violent towards yeah, people yeah, and your loved right. ones, your wife, your kids, whatever. Well, nobody's no. sleeping yeah. at this point. Well, You've yeah, got a too. job and you can't sleep at night because you're, you know, again, like the priest, you're stuck doing an exorcism every night. I don't know how it's they did like, it. It's not like, you know, the uncle could go, listen, I got to work in the morning. Good luck. Right. And I'll be down the hall if you have a real emergency. Yeah. You know, it was, no, he's stuck in there, too, because somebody's screaming and yelling and mm. priests are yelling. And, you know, I mean, it's all night long. Just family. Like, yeah. How long are you guys thinking on staying? Yeah, here, exactly. Know? Exactly. Uh, well, then they finally, now's their chance to get rid of them. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the priests leave and then he freaks out. And so father Bowden's like, okay, I'm going to go with you back to Maryland. Yeah. Well, I think he's afraid of what's going to happen on the train. Oh, which I think is very <laughs> fair. A valid yes. fear. Yeah. Um, so let's see, oh, we talked about all the numbers. Um, and then apparently the words hell and spite appeared, mm-hmm. but it's the same kind of thing with the numbers. Who knows? Well, and yeah, and again, I, you know, it, you know, it's, you could see whatever you want to see, Yeah. you know, and I don't know. We'll just leave it at that. Yep. I don't know. It wasn't there. That's so I don't no, know. That's fair. I mean, yeah. that's why we have iPhones now. We can just take pictures and let the <laughs> world decide. But so he starts doing something a little different again. He starts speaking in a strange. A camera would have been really convenient in this. I mean, you know, camera would have been guess, convenient in a lot of on things. On the other hand, you know, on the other hand, they were a little busy. And it's not like they were going to bring in a photographer. Oh, yeah. You know, um, because the, everybody who was involved was sworn to secrecy. And mm-hmm. everybody who was there was doing something. Right. You know, holding but, an appendage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But imagine that how this different this story would be if there had been someone there with a camera mm-hmm. to take pictures of this kid flipping out. Yeah. And to take pictures of these words appearing on things. Um, I think we would have a whole different look at this thing. I mean, it was 1949. People had cameras. Yeah. I mean, you had a camera at home. Um, you had a, a lot of people even had movie cameras by this time. Um, imagine if someone had had a movie camera there, um, if they had really wanted to document this thing. But of course, you know, technically, I think Father Bishop's diary was against orders from above mm-hmm. in a way, really, because they wanted it kept secret. And Father yeah. Bowdern is the one who said, listen, I, I want you to keep this record going because someday someone's going to need this. Yeah. Um, 
So I guess really that, I mean, I'm wishful thinking here and obviously it didn't happen. And so it's never going to happen. But imagine if it had. Yeah. Uh, we would all be looking at this much differently. Um, I think it would have made a tremendous impact. Of course, you always could have said, oh, well, you know, it's fake. Right. You know, there would always be someone, again, you're back to that argument. There's always an explanation, even if it's not legitimate. You know, yeah. even if it's, you know, even if it's a, you know, a caravan of, imaginary migrants you know there's always someone who's got an alternate explanation or as we like to call it a lie um that will alternate facts yeah right alternate facts um but there's there's always someone who would have said who could look at the film of this exorcism and say oh but that's not real yeah you know because i mean now we can create an exorcism on film that's we saw that in 1973 and it's still being done but in 1949 if that first hand would have been would have been interesting to have. Would have been a game changer. Yeah, it like, would have. Rob, it really would like, have. Robbie, hey, it takes like four minutes to take a picture. Could you sit still for a well, second? Well, no, I didn't take it back then. <laughs> I don't know you, how you long know, it you, took. You, you didn't. You you had a just a snapshot camera. You everybody didn't have to do one. the big flash. No, bomb no, no, thing. no, no. Yeah, everybody had speed graphic and film and stuff like that by 1949. You could have it in your house. So you know, um, an, an iPhone and an MRI would have well, really that would have yeah, that stuff. would have changed things, but. You know, the thing is, we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about this story True. if someone had been able to do it. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's just a it's just a thought. Yeah. So no, it's a good thought experiment. Uh, so we start speaking in a strange, dark voice that his parents say they hadn't heard before and says, I will not go until a certain word is pronounced and this boy will never say it. And was that his name? Spite or something? I'm well, guessing. You, or do you'll we, see. Do we know? Cliffhanger. Oh, OK. It's coming up in the next episode. All right. So. OK. Um, let's, oh, so I already asked you about the name thing. Uh, so they decide, uh, so we had some stuff happen on the train ride up, right? Yeah. Or just some, yeah, there was, some, it was just an incident. Some um, bellhops getting concerned Well, it was, uh, the porters kept porters. being signaled to their compartment. Oh, because he was pushing the he button. He kept pushing the button. Got and it. And it was acting like a spaz. And Father Bowdern just told, you know, the porters, listen, if you hear any more Anybody else calling from this compartment, don't come down here right. anymore. What did he the say about he's neurotic? Or no, sorry. the guy said, well, what's the matter with him? And he said, he's high strung. High strung. High strung. So. Gosh. So, he's uh, high strung or demonically possessed. Yeah. Let's go with high strung. Right. So. Which one makes more sense to the kid? So, But if pretty quickly, they make plans to go back to St. Well, Louis. Well, right? nobody would find, take him. Yeah, couldn't um, find anywhere for him he, to go. I mean, this was a case of where he wanted to – I don't know. This is a weird – this whole thing was is kind of weird. Um, because Father Bowdern was really anxious to, and, and, you know, there was probably a lot of conversation that we're not privy to. Yeah. Um, the family probably needed to get home. Mm-hmm. You know, his dad, for all we know, was on the verge of losing his job. Right. Because he's already traveling back and forth. And this is not 2018. Not you didn't just hop on remotely. A, yeah, you can't work from home. You can't hop on a plane. No Wi-Fi. I mean, he did fly once, but normally take the train. It's an overnight trip mm-hmm. to go from St. Louis to D.C. And so he probably needed to get home. So they probably needed to go. And so Father Bowdern, probably feeling that he was helping the family, needed to get Robbie someplace where he could be taken care of in the D.C. area. He also just wanted to get back to his own life. Yeah. I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, and I'm not faulting him. Again, once again, I am not questioning his integrity here. But I think that by this time, um, his responsibilities that he had were 
really not being fulfilled very yeah. well. I mean, I think Father Van Rue was doing everything he could to keep up with things. He was kind of like his intern mm-hmm. and was kind of trying to keep up. But it's Holy Week. I mean, that is a big deal. Yeah. And it's one of the biggest churches in the city. And he had a lot on his hands and had a lot on his plate. And it's almost time for all of that to start. And he's like on the train working on all of his things that he has to do. And Oh, the paperwork. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So... You know, he needed to find a place that was secure where Robbie could be kept, and nobody wanted him. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as he said, oh, and by the way, yeah. you, know, you know, I've got this kid who needs to go into a hospital. And by the way, we're in the middle of an exorcism because we believe he's possessed. Um, it was thanks, but no thanks. And so the place I mean, didn't want to lose funding well, and right. things like that. He and... found an, an institution that would take him that was run by nuns. They said that they would take him, and the, but... Everybody wanted Father Bowdner to stay there. Mm-hmm. Well, if he's going to have to do the exorcism himself, you might as well go back home yeah. and do it, which is what it all what it, right. what it boiled down. Because the Alexian brothers so, said, "You can always bring come him back, back here. here." Yeah, we'll we'll handle it. Bring him back here. And so I found this interesting. Um, so they're they're making plans to go back to St. Louis. Robbie's freaking out while he's brushing his teeth, does a bunch of masturbating gestures and all the crazy shit he's doing. And for the first time, the priest tranks the kid. Yeah, I know. For right? the first time. Right, I know. I would have done that way yeah, earlier on. Day three. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'd been I like, know. no, I'm done with this. Yeah. Um, and talked about how, I guess some of this wasn't written down, but how he then showed that he was knowing things that he shouldn't know about some of the, yeah. the priests or people in the right. room. Right, and again, though we, we have, that's, a, that's third-hand information. Mm-hmm. Being passed back to Father Bishop, who wasn't there. Yeah, and also who and, would want, who would want to write that? Stuff well, right, down, and, you, know? you know they don't want to write it down. They didn't want to be specific about what it is, so we kind of have to take their word for it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that it, again, not saying it didn't happen, but here's your, you know, make of this what you will. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so this is our next. This is our next piece of criteria in yep. a possession. Um, this is the other thing that was missing when permission was given for the exorcism was him being able to come up with information that there was no way for him to know. That was mm-hmm. the other missing piece. Now, suddenly we have it. Yeah. Convenient? Sure. Um, that's not to say it didn't happen, but you could see where skepticism comes in. For sure. And it's, again, you've got this questionable thing about the language. Now you've got this questionable thing about the, the other missing piece. And, you know, Father Bishop wasn't there to write it down. And we don't, we don't know. We don't know what was said because no one will say. Who knows? Right. You and know. well, then this last part that I have, it, it makes a lot of sense, honestly. So they start documenting what words and phrases were hitting the demon the hardest. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, much like the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park testing the electrified fence. Exactly. Um, exactly. But, but it, it makes yeah. sense to say, okay, when does he freak out the most? Yeah. What do we say? What let's, really pisses him off. Let's keep hit, Let's, let's keep hit that over there. and over and over again. Yeah. And that's where we'll pick up for part five yep. of the St. Louis Exorcism. Right. Which will, part five will mark the end of the exorcism. We have one more episode um, that will bring us to the end. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about some things that we've been hinting at for the last four episodes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, our final episode is going to cover uh, all of the other stories that you've heard connected to the exorcism. Yeah. And the so. phone lines will be open, you know, we'll be taking calls. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> right. No, that'll, the next, I'm excited for these last two. But if you do have, you know, if, if you do have questions um, about episode six, mm-hmm. uh, of course, you're not going to know what it is, but what I'm saying is that it's going to be the after that. So if you've got questions about things 
about St. Louis or, you know, connected to the exorcism locations, all that kind of stuff, send them in now. Yeah. Um, that'll give us some time to, if there's anything we need to look up or check into, mm-hmm. uh, that'll give us time. So when you're hearing this, if you have questions about the, I guess, the aftermath uh, stories, urban legends, stories you've heard about St. Louis, mm-hmm. we're going to try to cover everything. But if we can't, um, if you've got some questions, please send them. Yep, you send can, them to Cody. You can email us, AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us both on Twitter, Instagram, right, Facebook, right. all that. Let us know. If you have a story that you know is true. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll kind of let you know what's going on. Tell us why we're idiots. If, well, well, there's always that. So, No, I'm, I'm excited to uh, to dive into the, to the end of the exorcism. And then, I mean, this started so much. Oh, as far as you know, know. The movies and books and, yeah, and yeah. just uh, ramping up exorcisms as far in, in the Catholic Church and um, this was really it's a revolutionary event yeah. as far oh, as that yeah. goes. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well let's on that note I think we can let's let's wrap up this episode, which I know has been a marathon session. So thank you for hanging in with us this long. Um, because I know, like I said, I know this was a long, long episode, but there was a lot of material that we needed to cover and, and a lot we needed to talk about. So, and, and again, if you have questions, let us know, um, so we can address them in the, in the last episode. Uh, we want to, we're going to really wrap up the story, um, with episode six, uh, but there's still one more to go. Of course, we still have some story that, uh, we're going to hit you with in December and, uh, before we wrap this thing up. So thank you very much for listening, and uh, I'm going to flip it back over to Cody. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Haunting Podcast... Fuck. <laughs> American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can, you can hear new episodes every other Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> So please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American and Hauntings. Spotify, and Spotify. And Spotify, yeah. Stitcher. You know, hey, you know what? It's, I, I, no one's listening to this Google anyway, Play. but I'm going to jump in here because when you got us on the Spotify, we were ahead of the curve. Yeah. They're just now starting to really ramp up podcasts on yeah. Spotify because they've started to get into a lot of trouble with licensing and stuff. Well, and they got to make some that, money. Yeah, they're somewhere. finding that podcasts is something else that they can do. Uh, but we were really ahead of the game on that. And it and took us a while to get approved. It for did. That it too. did. And we we're way ahead of a lot of other people. So um, if you find us on Spotify, um, it's pretty cool uh, that, that we're on there because, I mean, that's where I listen to most of my music, really, yeah. uh, is Spotify. What and it's exciting to have that. us on there. So yeah. anyway, yeah, but anyway, so there you go. iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Um, all of our all of our episodes are on there. And uh, just look up American Hauntings Podcast. You couldn't have said it better myself. Well, go on and finish. All right. Sorry, I wanted to jump in. As for the host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cody Beck STL or Did Cody you say AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com? Did you say our website address? You just did. Okay, well, AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. Yes, that's right. There are links to some of my books, as there well are... as information about upcoming ghost tours events and haunted happenings you're, now for our hosts you're so good at reading well, i just was you know you want to finish I think it I up interrupt, no i interrupted you and so i wanted you to finish so, so go ahead i'm yep. sorry no you're good so you find me at codybeck.com and you can find troy did you say your twitter handle? i did i did okay. you find troy on instagram at troy taylorgram on facebook at the troy taylor author page Which i couldn't believe was available when i Why didn't, you couldn't just get troy taylor 
Well, I had Troy Taylor, but it just didn't seem cool. Oh. So I changed it to Troy Taylor Graham, and it was available. Yeah. Hey, yeah. what the hell? You know. So, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Facebook Sorry. at Troy Taylor Author Page or AmericanHonics.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. See ya. See ya. I think.